I'm Staff Sergeant Stephen L. Phillips. I'm with 25 Victors, Combat Documentation Specialist slash NCOs. I was actually born in Winter Garden, Florida, uh, back in 1979. Uh, I was with my mother, Susan Soper, as she is called now. Obviously, there was a divorce that happened between her and my father. Uh, lived with them for a few years down in Florida, and then we moved up to New York uh, so we can get away from some issues that were happening in Florida. And once we got there, they kind of separated paths. And then myself, my brother, and my father were left on our own. What did I do before I joined the military? Well, I joined when I was exactly 17 years of age. So basically, I had gotten out of high school and went right into the military. But I joined the National Guard rather than the active uh, component for the uh, Army. So when I joined the National Guard, it gave me an opportunity to finish out my high school uh, diploma so that I could graduate the next year and then continue on in my service in the military. And the funny story behind that was the reason I joined was one of two reasons. One, my brother, Paul Phillips, he actually joined uh, before I did because he was older than I was. And I also had a thing that came up with the law that basically said, you're going to go to war or you're going to go to jail. So I opted to uh, go to war. (laughs) And I just keep going back to a song that we keep singing with each other. It's like a part of a cadence, you know, it's always, there's a part that says, got a letter in the mail, go to war, go to jail. And I told the judge, I said, hey, look, I'm trying to be straight and actually do right and do better with my life. So I'm joining the military. So if you're willing to reduce the charges, I'll be more than willing to join the military. And the judge literally looked at me and said, well, now you have no choice. You're joining the military. And I was like, okay, no problem. (laughs) The only person I needed to get consent from was my father. My mother was divorced. She had no idea I was joining. Once she found out, of course, she was she was happy for me because then she knew that I was going and go, trying to go do something better with my life and doing something great, you know, for the nation and whatnot. Uh, but like I said, I didn't really have much of a relationship with her, unfortunately. I probably spent the better part of like 18 years just not really talking with her. But my father, he was the one that was, he was just like, okay, whatever, here you go, sign the paper and go. <laughs> have a good time, enjoy. <laughs> Uh, he continues to say that he's, you know, happy for me doing my service. But a lot of times when I talk to him, I don't feel like he's thankful for it. For me, it's it's more of a battle for myself rather than it is a battle with my family and them fighting me, fighting against me about it or supporting me with it. You know, it's it's very difficult for me because again, I really had that support like a lot of people have had in their lives. The proof that I didn't really have that support was when I finished my basic. And my advanced individual training, nobody was at my graduation. It was just me. I got on a bus and I went home. And then when I uh, when I got promoted, anytime I got promoted, anytime I've been deployed, come back from deployments, nothing. I've never had anybody there for me. When I went off to boot camp, uh, the one thing that really stuck out of my head was the initial lead up, the build up to that point where you're getting to the training. Uh, because we had to go from where our place was in a plane down to Georgia, Atlanta. Never been there before in my life, so I'm freaking out already. And this was during 1996, by the way, which was the Olympics, which the bombings happened with. So we're at the airport. All of a sudden, it's like we're getting corralled into these buses. And I'm instantaneously thinking, oh, God, what do I do? Like, I don't know what I'm spo- what disciplinary mind I'm supposed to be in. Then the buses take us over to what's called the 30th AG, which is basically their in-processing area before the basic training phase. You get there, and then already 
you're getting yelled at and screamed at and told to take batteries out of things and you can't have this and that. And then I realized that wasn't even the first phase of the basic training. And after that, we eventually uh, got through the 30th AG with in processing, getting our uniforms, getting a kind of a small dose of reality check and then put into cattle trucks, crammed into cattle trucks and then shipped off to where we needed to go. I kind of definitely had that feeling of like, what did I just get myself into? Do I recall a specific instructor? Um, I think there's one individual who actually stands out in my head, and his name was Drill Sergeant Black. <laughs> this man would come into the barracks area, and everybody would yell at ease, but he had this kind of like this, this I'm going to beat you down within an inch of your life kind of look in his eyes. But then he just stared at you and just gave you that like death stare and then walked off. He was one of those guys that just, he had that thousand yard stare kind of thing, you know, and he just scared the living crap out of you. I have received uh, quite a bit of specialized training. Uh, I went through an airborne school, which was down at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, it was about a uh, two-week course. It really wasn't that bad. They, Of course, they talk about the airborne shuffle, which wasn't much. But basically, we jump out of planes. I am also a level four combatives instructor, which currently the name has actually been changed around to a master tactical combatives instructor. And basically, I teach jujitsu, Muay Thai, Greco-Roman, and boxing to the soldiers. And I have to certify all the soldiers. How did I adapt to the military life? It was actually really easy. Because when you start out when you're young and you're just getting out of like high school and stuff like that, it's easy to turn off those things that you've learned in the past and then to readjust what you need to learn and what you need to do because you're, you're willing to suck in the information that you need. You know, you're more receptive for the information that they have. And so for me, it was a lot easier. Uh, the physical part, of course, thankfully, you know, I did a lot of sports when I was in high school from like football to wrestling to track and field. When you're young, it's a lot easier to get into the military and change your frame of mind. Of course, I'm from a little country area, so I didn't have as much of an influence from outside sources like other people, uh, peers and stuff like that trying to, you know, swayed me to go the wrong way. So it was easier for me to get in there and basically figure out what was right. I started running when I was in my, I'd say, junior year of high school. Uh, I wasn't very good. Well, we had cinder tracks at the time, so if you lost a shoe, you're pretty well foobarred. Uh, just ran from that point. I was only running like 11 minute, 15 seconds in, uh, high school, got into the, the military and they were like, if you can run 11 minutes, 58 seconds, you max. I was set. I'm like 11, 15. And from that point, I realized that that was probably the one thing that I was actually good at. So I continued to pursue that as I was in the military. When I got into the regular service, I decided to go ahead and do some army 10 milers and then do some marathons after a while, which I've done the Boston three times as well as the Disney marathon a couple of times as well. The marathons outside the military, uh, I did the, I started the very first one was when I was with the 10 special forces group out of Fort Carson, Colorado. Uh, they had an open window or an open uh, slot for uh, somebody to go and participate in the, uh, the 2011 Boston Marathon. And they looked right at me first initially because they said, you've run the 10-miler for our team for the Colorado. They're like, we're wondering, we're coming to you first. Do you want to run this? I was like, of course I do. So I went out, uh, ran it in two hours and 57 minutes, which uh, a lot of people strive to actually get three hours or better on it. And I hit it my first time out. And I was just like blown away. I was like, I don't even know how that happened. So then after that, I was good for the 2012 season, uh, went out for 2012. Uh, it ended up being the worst marathon 
ever because it was actually the second hottest recorded temperature they had in Boston history. It was 89 degrees and 66% humidity. So needless to say, I didn't qualify for the next year, but I really wanted to run. So I talked to some of the coordinators that next year and then got in through the military to go ahead and run the Boston Marathon. And as you know, that was the 2013 Boston Marathon, which was the one that had the bombing that went off. I was in the medical tent and I was just coming out, which is about a half a block away from where the finish line was. Uh, When I came out, there was an explosion that went off, a cannon explosion. And I thought, man, I was like, what in the world? I turned around and looked at the finish and thought, that's that's strange because it's not even the end of the marathon as far as the time is concerned. Why is why is there a celebratory cannon going off? And that's when I saw the debris and the smoke kind of flying out where the the uh, explosive had gone off. And I was looking at the guy next to me, going like, "What's going on?" He's like, "I have no idea." And then that's when I saw the second bomb explode and go off just behind the other one. And in my head, the first initial reaction was, "We're under attack." So I hobbled my way, <laughs> literally hobbled my way down to where the finish was uh, to see what I could do to try to help out the the police and the fire department and all that. Uh, at first, I was greeted with a, a a lot of resistance from the police officers because they didn't know who I really was or whether I was involved with you know everything that happened there and stuff. Um, but then I eventually talked to one of the guys and he basically just told me to just keep the crowd you know, from coming over to the other side of the the road because, you know, we didn't know if there was more explosives that would go off. But uh, it was a heck of a scene because um, when I when I got there, there was just blood just all over the ground everywhere. I mean, it was all over the street. The, the windows were all shattered out. And uh, the only people that really got hurt were the ones that were nearest to where the, the trash cans were. I mean, they did a, such a great job. I mean, they had this triage area for the medical facility that was right there. They had a huge amount of ambulatory vehicles and police officers and everything else helping out. And even the people themselves, they didn't panic that much. It was all inspiring. When I found out that I was going to Iraq, um, I was actually full of a bunch of different emotions. Uh, One of them mainly was just go home, go see my family before I head out, uh, spend some time with them. And then once I came back, the biggest thing going through my head was what's going to happen. Like I know that there's a lot of intense fire and a lot of things that are happening there. And uh, by the time we were ready to roll out uh, 4th Infantry Division, who was with the 1st Cav in Fort Hood, already captured uh, Saddam Hussein and had him in the custody. So I thought, oh, this isn't going to be that bad once we get there. When we did our drive up through Kuwait to Baghdad, I mean, there was no anything. The thing that scared the heck out of me was that when this, these Apaches flew overhead really close, like flyby, it was a lot of different feelings. But I think one of the things that really stuck out of my head the most was when we were in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth um, uh, airport. We were walking through one of the, the upper uh, terminal areas where it's like, a, I guess, like a, a glass like tunnel as you walk through and all the people down on the ground can see you. And we're wearing, wearing our desert camouflage uniforms. And I'm thinking like, oh, lottie dottie, here we go. Let's go to war. And all of a sudden I hear one person just start to clap. And I just looked down and saw the person standing up and starting to clap. And I thought, I mean, I just had this invigoration go over me and I just felt so moved. And then everybody in the whole airport just started to clap and cheer us on and yell USA. And I was like, 
God bless America, man. I'm like, and it made me feel a lot more comfortable going overseas, knowing that we had that kind of backing to us. I did uh, four tours in Iraq. I never went to Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, each time it was a different operation that I was there for. So there's about a total of six operations for Iraq. I was there for five of them. So I was there from 2004 to 2005. Uh, 2006, about six months, 2008 was six months, and 2009 was six months. The only uh, two cities that I really had the opportunity to see, uh, the big main one was Baghdad, uh, which I was stationed out of the first couple of times. And then after that, I was in uh, Kalsu, Fob Kalsu, which was further south. And that was, again, with the Green Beret Special Forces guys. When I finished that tour, got out, went to 55th Combat Camera, and then that's where I actually started to be able to do my job. And that's where in 2006, I deployed over to um, Iraq again, and then did another stint there for uh, them doing photo and video. And that's where I saw a little more action uh, while I was there. The only thing that I really experienced was an improvised explosive device going off. Of course, the bad news for me was I wasn't in a vehicle. I was in the streets when the explosion went off. And I heard this just a uh, uh, quick whistle like go by my ear. You know, it was like a zing. And uh, I took cover behind like some barricades and stuff like that and uh, saw the, the smoke coming up from, you know, where the explosion went off. And it wasn't like a big bright fireball like you'd normally see on movies it was just like uh like the dirt from the sand coming up and then like the black smoke kind of rising up and uh that zing that went by my head was basically shrapnel that was flying by and uh again like i said i was kind of fortunate just to have missed that and then went behind one of the barricades and but i mean apart from that that was the only explosion that really went off uh i did have some guys shoot at me as well but you know it's <laughs> whatever the biggest thing was at least that i can gather from what was happening over there was there was no real plan <laughs> when you're on the base about where to go. There was no f secondary position, no hasties, no nothing. Every day we continued to get hit with mortars and missiles and then they would shoot artillery out at them and it's, it was hard to tell what was incoming and what was outgoing all the time. Like first of all, we have body armor, we have Kevlar's, all that stuff, right? We weren't wearing that. And we were being hit all the time. And I, in my head, I'm going like, this is not what right looks like. There has to be fallback positions. So like I said, as the years progressed, they finally started to adapt where they put bunkers in places or they had dugout areas for us to go to. And I was going like, what happened after the first like seven years? Like nothing. Like we even had to build our own vehicles up from that point. We had canvas cloth tops. We didn't have anything to protect us. <laughs> our first, when we first rolled out, when we first started, like we actually had to drive from Kuwait to Baghdad, which was a three day drive. It was, my butt was sore for weeks after that. Um, we had to take the sides off of the vehicle, the doors, so that we'd be able to see the enemy. And I'm like, that's great. So they'll be able to see us too. That's that's horrible. So so we drove literally for three days with just no doors on the side of our vehicle. And little kids could run up and just throw grenades in there if they want to or whatever. And they told us not to throw our MRE packets out at the kids and give them food because they would use those packets to put explosives in and give back to us. They would stuff the dead animals with a 155, like big artillery rounds, and have them detonate when vehicles are going by. The sad thing is my friend is pretty much the only person that really sticks in my head. I mean, I had a lot of people that I was over there in Iraq with. But like I said, my buddy, you know, he was uh, 
with the the infantry division when uh, he was with the first cavalry division, he was killed in action. Uh, essentially, he was out on a convoy. Uh, they were going out to check a local village uh, to see if they needed any help or anything like that. Uh, as they were going up towards where the one of the underpasses were for uh, one of the roads, a insurgent stepped out from the backside of where the uh, the overpass was and had an RPG round, shot it, and was trying to hit the Bradley with an anti-armor round, and the Bradley veered out of the way because it saw it coming. And unfortunately, my buddy's vehicle was right behind that. And so when that tank veered off, that RPG came in and just hit him direct head on. And uh, I mean, to me, he was he was a hero because there were about four or five other guys that were in that vehicle with him. And initially, that impact that happened to him was only con- confined to him and it didn't spread to the other guys. So in my head, he kind of saved four or five other people's lives that were in that vehicle. And I think that's the one thing that really sticks out the most to me. I knew in my head right from the get-go that I was going to be by myself, that nobody was going to be there holding up signs, woke me back, coming in, crying, and giving me a hug or anything like that. So I would say the initial thing for me was just, I'm going to get back to work. So what I did was the next day, I literally just came back to work. And then uh, the NCO was just like, why aren't you taking time off, spending with your family? I said, well, <laughs> I was like, my family lives way up over here or way down over here. You know, it's, it's, I'd have to plan a trip and take leave and all that stuff. And they were just like, all right, well, if, you know, if that's how you are, or how you feel about this and you have no problems, we'll go ahead and get you back to work. And sure enough, you know, I just went to work the next day. So from that point, it was kind of sad again because now here I am setting up these speakers on top of the stands and mixer boards and all that stuff so that we can um, get the the microphone for the general to speak to the incoming personnel and then sure enough they come in and all these people running up and hugging them and happy and of course there I am just you know setting things up and getting back into work and that's how it was after every single deployment I went through uh, spend a lot of my Christmases over there a lot of my birthdays which I don't really care about anymore <laughs> I try not to think about how old I am. And then um, coming back, like I said, it's just, you know, my family's so used to me just going out and coming back that it's it's just a normal day for me. And again, like I said, I I try to be strong, you know, for myself as well, because, you know, you got to kind of be strong. Uh, Because once I get out of the military, I'm going to be fending for myself as well. And if you don't learn how to be strong in the military, you won't learn how to be strong out in the normal society with civilians and stuff like that. The only things really that I got was um, two JSCOMs, which are Joint Service Commendation Medals. I got two JSANs, or Joint Service Achievement Medals. And I've got, oh God, like six RCOMs, Army Commendation Medals, and six AEMs, Army Achievement Medals. And uh, actually, during my deployment as well, I got two unit awards. Uh, meritorious unit citation, but I have two of those, and uh, joint meritorious unit achievements, Jamuas, and two of those. But I've also got so many other awards. I mean, I got like proficiency badge, and which is a German award. Uh, then I got the Schutzensnare, which is also another German badge, and then Dutch jump wings, and just all kinds of stuff. So, But the most important ones were the JSCOM, RCOMs, AEMs, and JSAMs. I'm kind of one of those guys who like a jack of all trades, but a master of none of them. So I like to do the drawing and working with the graphic art stuff and playing music and doing my running and um, 
jujitsu on the side as well and stuff like that. But like I said, I, I do so much extra stuff on the side that I just, I'm not very good at any one of them, <laughs> which is discouraging. <laughs> uh, what advice would I be giving to a vet or somebody who's getting out of the military, just getting into the uh, kind of a career field that they want to get into? Uh, it's, it's a very uh, tug of war kind of situation when you come out because uh, when you get to a place, you, you kind of have to, you yourself, go out and put yourself out there, find these places. You know, I mean, the great thing is, one of the biggest things is you have that background from the military. People will look at that and actually see, they know they're going to be like, this is a hard worker because he's in the military. Now, you don't want to kind of put that image out there where you go in and you join this the force and they're like oh he should be good at doing being you know because he was in the military and then you're a dirtbag you know that just wouldn't look good for you or any other military person who gets out but you definitely want to use that as one of the 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 ways forward uh when you get out of the military you know maybe uh go to college use that gi bill something like that or if you have a degree already figure out through the, your college who you went through where you can do internships at because what the problem becomes is like with myself once i got out i wouldn't know exactly what to do where to go who to look for i have no clue I'm like, the problem is the opportunities are there in front of yourself. You just don't take it. And like I said, if you do the college thing and you do the internship, that's a way into the industry. And the best part about that being a way into the industry, it also, with you having that military background, it's a huge benefit. I mean, it, it exponentiates your possibility to be hired. And uh, they kind of look at that. And, you know, again, we have experience. Even if you have the background on something, maybe do some more research to kind of figure out, you know, what other traits you need to have or do you need to have a degree in something else you know and like i said it becomes kind of a it's a very difficult transition as well because it's it's not regimented like the military as well currently uh i'm with the nfl films it's anybody's dream to be able to work with those guys which it really is um and I'm actually part of what's called the Training with Industry program for the Army, which has actually allowed me that opportunity. Once I'm done with NFL films, I'll end up at Fort Meade, Maryland. Uh, I may end up with DINFOS, which is Defense Information School, but I'm not really sure. There's a lot I want to do. I actually want to have my own company uh, as an in-state kind of a, a deal if I can possibly do it. But a lot more research has to go into that. <laughs> But as far as the, you know, work-wise, yeah, I mean, being a camera operator, working in film, whatever, I think would be awesome. I mean, I've been struggling with trying to think about what I can do because I got four years until I retire, so. Mama, mama, can't you see? Mama, mama, can't you see?